0: Listeners, welcome to another episode of EM Over Easy. I'm Drew Kelno, joined by co-host Andy Little, the co-host, by the way. But that's not what it's just about. We are gonna talk to a emergency medicine physician and medical
1: legal expert, Brian Akunto. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm like excited, you know. I was gonna wear my t-shirt, my EM over easy t-shirt to the to the podcast today, but I'm like that's like being that guy at the concert that wears like the band's t shirt to their concert. You don't want That's to be okay. That
0: guy. A- Andy right now is wearing an emo for easy pullover in Florida in the middle of the summer to be the guy that is performing in the concert where yeah, he's the
1: host. Yeah, but he's the host of his show. That's isn't acceptable. That, isn't it That's more exactly. cliche
0: when you're like on stage promoting your. I don't, I don't know. It's debatable. <laughs> debatable. Well, hey, before we go any further, a couple things to talk about. Number one, just a reminder we are the official podcast of the ACOEP, and that is how we know Brian. Brian, Andy, and myself are all uh, significant contributors to the ACOEP. And there is a pretty exciting conference coming up this October in Las Vegas. The end of October is the Scientific Assembly. We're all going to be there doing different presentations. Over Easy is going to be there in mass with three different live shows in the afternoons of the conference. So if you have a chance to make it to Vegas, please do so. We would love to see you there and, and talk more Over Easy stuff. All right, I've done my plug. Andy, I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs>
2: Well, Brian, first, thank you for reaching out to us because we have talked about having you on the show before. But as Drew will know, we talk a lot and our execution is not always the best. So we always love it when we talk about Don't bringing on a guest. you dare throw me under the bus. There was no bus there. That, w- whatever. Um, but Brian reached out and said, hey, I really want to come on and talk about diagnostic errors. And this is something Brian and I have talked to talked about offline. It's something that our show has talked about offline, but we've never actually done it on the show. So Brian introduce this idea of diagnostic errors and i know you wanted to leave
1: with the case yeah so we're going to talk about a case first and then we'll really get into what a diagnostic errors error is but let's talk about a 61 year old african-american male comes to your ed complaining of three days on and off but more on especially in the last 24 hours left arm weakness and you know you talk to him, he's got a history of hypertension. He starts telling you, you know, when you get to your social history, I do drink six a day. So I'm going, that's probably closer to 12 a day. Hey. And he's like, yeah. And I sleep like I, the other night, like I might have fallen asleep or passed out on my recliner chair with my arm above my head. So you do your NIH stroke exam and the gentleman holds his arms out and it, they're like this, of course, first, nobody puts their arms out like that. When you say, Hey, can you put your arms out like this? What do they do? They put it like, like this, this by
0: right? the way, Brian, Brian is looking at us all on a screen, but this is an audio podcast only. So it is, it is holding the pizza box, <laughs> demonstrating pronator drift without any drift.
1: Right. But <laughs> what does every patient do when you ask them to both hold their hands out with, you know, their palms up, they put their palms down, right? Always. So when he does this, you notice the left arm is kind of like, the left hand is like drooping down, right? So you're like sitting, this kind of looks more like a, you know, radial nerve palsy. So you sit there, examine him. His stroke score is like maybe one for some mild, you know, sensory de- uh, alterations on that left hand. You do your rest of your exam. You're like, I think this is a radial nerve palsy, right? This guy can hold his arm up. There's no drip. This is like really localized and it looks more like a peripheral nerve issue. So Just a CYA, we get the CAT scan, the CAT scans, what? It's normal. So clearly it's not a stroke, right? I mean, it's been going on for three days on off, but more on for the last 24 hours. Everything else looks good. Hey, radial nerve palsy. Although there's a couple of little things that don't make sense here. When you feel his left arm compared to his right arm, it's colder. But when you check his pulses, they're intact. You actually are like, what's going on here? Am I missing? Is it a dissection? Two ABIs, they're exactly the same. You know, blood pressure the same. ABIs are are actually greater than one in both arms. You're like, huh? Talk to, you know, some consultants. They're like, oh yeah, that's probably, you know, more to do with the radial nerve and the injury. Don't worry about it. You know, splint them, send them up the office, put them on steroids, we'll see them. And you discharge them. And what happens, right? Because we're talking about this case. It can't be a good outcome. So what happens? Three days later, he comes back. His symptoms are worse. It's now involving not only the left arm, but the left face, the left leg, speech. He has a huge MCA stroke and does not do well. All right. So you sit there and you're like, well, that's kind of crazy. And you're like, that's a really tough case. Like, why are we talking about, you know, you're giving this case, why are you talking about? Diagnostic errors. It doesn't sound like you made an error. It sounds like the guy presented with like a classic radial nerve palsy, and then was like the the wolf in sheep clothing, right? But I think there are subtle things, and we'll kind of get into it as we we talk about diagnostic errors. You know, there are subtle things. Did we get enough information? Right? Did we kind of like once we kind of saw the the, the peripheral nerve and say radial nerve palsy? Did we forget to maybe do more exams? Did we forget maybe to do more history taking? That may have limited us, right? So, what if the guy said, "Oh yeah, I was actually having some tingling on and off of my left thigh." All right. Well, now how does that relate to the left arm? Did we miss something, right? So we know since 1999, right, the Errors Human came out by the Institute of Medicine saying 44 to 98 thousand people die of preventable medical errors each year, right? That's a 737 falling in the sky each day in the auto or the airline industry. That would an, not be an 800 good. or a max,
0: or is that, is it too soon to,
1: you know, my, my knowledge of, I, I mean, I'm not the one that's sitting in a fighter pilot jet, but 123 people. I don't know if that's a 737 max or a super I I mean, a it's 737.
0: It's actually like a, a 300 or a 400. Okay. So, so All we're okay. Right. It's not inappropriate to talk about that. Okay. The, the, the max is, you know, the whole like falling out of the sky thing is real. Yeah. So you probably shouldn't. Sure, well, I probably- well,
1: well, look, that happened, right? Aviation injury, industry was, you know, taking huge hits from the government. What the hell is going on? This is happening in medicine every day. Why aren't we talking about it more, right? And what is everybody's first question to me when they're like, hey, you got this medical legal like knowledge? What's the first thing they ask me? Hey, can I get sued for this case, right? Everybody wants every physician, they're good physicians, they're good providers. They want to do good by their patients, but they're so worried about getting sued because they like, that's like the biggest insult to our, not only our ego, but to all the hard work and dedication we put into to our profession. And I think, you know, everybody wants to go to these, you know, like at ACAP, all the medical legal lectures are always well-received because it's like, I want that information so I prevent getting sued. But it's like, let's take a step back. How do we prevent even getting on the radar? That I have to worry about something that I documented, right? Let's look at diagnostic errors. So, when we talk about these medical errors that, you know, to errors human talked about, it was like the tip of the iceberg the wrong medication, the wrong site surgeries, like those are pretty profound, pretty obvious. But what is less obvious and probably more, and we're talking about 18 million diagnostic errors occurring each year, which actually resulted in Medical errors being the third leading cause of death prior to the pandemic, right? And then the pandemic overtook it. But that, you know that's the impact of diagnostic errors there. It's huge. 12% of all hospital adverse events, 10% of all inpatient hospital deaths, 74,000 deaths a year, diagnostic errors and, and medical error here.
2: So, so, so Brian, real quick, you're throwing on a ton of numbers that are scary yeah, as I hear yeah. this. But what is a diagnostic error? Let's start so with that.
1: That's what we're going to go to. So now when we keep talking about these numbers, what is a diagnostic error? And when we look at the, the Institute of Medicine and their book, From Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare, a diagnostic error is a failure to establish an accurate and timely explanation of a patient's health problem or diagnosis, right? Or communicate that explanation to the patient. So there's three components there. So we have to make the right diagnosis accurate, timely. And that thing about that's like that aortic dissection that you picked up two hours into you know them being in your ER, and by the time you finally diagnose it, oops, they're dead, right? We got to diagnose that in like you know a minute at the bedside, and then you know the timely you know communication of that is the classic. Hey, remember that CAT scan that had that thyroid nodule on that patient that you discharged? Forgot to tell them about. Well, it's a year later, and they died from thyroid cancer, right? So you can start seeing where these come from. And with the the you know establishing accurate diagnosis, I think that's the one that hits emergency medicine providers the most. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to kind of reverse the role here and ask you guys. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what's the most common procedure that we do in emergency medicine?
2: Most common procedure? Yep. I'm I'm, I'm going with like lac repairs. Uh, Joint enjoying- wrong. <laughs> Uh throw, throw one
1: out there. I, Come on. IV
2: placement.
0: Nope. Well, I'm not doing the IV placement. If I yes, am, things right. have gone really awry. I mean uh, co- common complex procedure intubation is going to be by far the, the most common complex so, one.
1: So you guys are thinking way too deep, right? You're thinking about these complex procedures, right? But what's the simplest procedure we do every day? We diagnose patients. Yeah, right? yeah. we take information, we plug I, it into our I computer. question your definition of procedure. All right. But I mean, it's a something that we do, right? It involves getting information, processing that information, Mm -hmm. and then putting out an answer. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's the most common thing that we're doing in the emergency room, right? And if you look at all half of of the closed claims from the ED, half of them involved failure to diagnose. And if you think about it, the rest were probably still related to that because it was failure to treat in a timely fashion, loss of opportunity, which again, all revolves around an accurate diagnosis in a timely fashion. And then we've all heard about the, hey, you failed to communicate that nodule, you know, those types of communication issues. So, so I Brian, think, let's pause yeah. there
0: for a second, because, you know, diagnostic care is a really terrifying thing to think about as an emergency medicine physician. It, there's the concept also of diagnostic ambiguity, right? right. We, we have a limited amount of time with a patient. Yes, we have a lot of tools at our We have a lot of resources available to us to diagnose or more realistically rule out significant processes. You know, what's my most common discharge diagnosis in the emergency department? It is the same chief complaint the patient walked into the emergency department with, right? Abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, chest pain, not otherwise specified, you know, whatever. I am not often diagnosing a specific process. There's a lot of diagnostic ambiguity, but what we're doing is we're trying our best to rule out severe illness and disease with the somewhat limited time and resources that we have. So how do we marry the two of those concepts? Because within diagnostic ambiguity, there is inevitably going to be significant error that I would argue is not preventable.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And I think it's kind of a balance, right? Because, I mean, we're not going to irradiate everybody just to, to get a maybe answer, right? So I think there's a balance there, but I think let's let's go back to, to what we do in emergency medicine, right? Like we're seeing tons of patients, right? There's two types of thinking, right? There's type one and type two. Type one is that quick, intuitive, you know, I've learned from seeing and I've seen this before. And or you know, I it's almost like a gut feeling. It's quick. I make these quick decisions versus type two, which is like the that the famous house, you know, let's go on the chalkboard and list our differentials and cross everything out. We can't do that in emergency medicine. Yeah, it's internal right? medicine. That would take yeah. way too much time, way too much effort. After two patients, we'd be exhausted. How does the emergency medicine provider make their diagnosis? Okay. I see these EKG changes. I've seen them before. The patient's sweaty, diaphoretic, and they're clutching their chest, right? Am I right? So we, we create these, you know, illness scripts or what actually become is these heuristics, these simple shortcuts. We do patent recognition and that's good. And it's very effective. It works majority of the time and it saves us from you know doing that type two thinking which would exhaust us so we're able to work in like the craziest and most you know stressful environment that's like actually prone to error and we do really good most of the time now how do we do better well we have to realize our shortcuts fail us because it's like you said there's a lot of ambiguity maybe we don't have all the information Maybe I've never seen this before. Maybe this is kind of the odd presentation of a common issue, or it's a rare, you know, a common presentation of a rare issue like that CPC case model, right? Do I have all the information I need? You know, am I, you know, is my thinking now faulty? And that's where we start thinking, have our heuristics failed us? Has that simple shortcut of pattern recognition failed us? Because A, I'm missing information, or I'm applying the information wrong, right? So that's where you get into. You know, and I hate the word biases, right? Everybody's like, "Oh, I've heard these biases now: anchoring bias, premature closure, confirmation bias, availability heuristic." We're starting to hear about these. I don't like using the word bias because of, of the the terminology and how it's being used, you know, nationally right now or, or publicly. But I think we can talk about them as cognitive dispositions to respond, right? Because our heuristics, we're using them, our cognition just says, oh, this is how we respond. Well, some of the times it's faulty, right? So are we putting too much weight on one piece of evidence and ignoring the other evidence that tells us your diagnosis is wrong? Well, Brian, we, I,
2: I, just real quick, I, yeah. I'm, as, you're, as you're saying this, I'm going back to the case you started with. So we yeah. have, and to me, this is a great example that I know Drew and I, I work with my learners. I've seen Drew do it with his learners where it's the crap in crap out mentality to where I don't think our shortcuts are always the problem. I think that it's, we, we don't put the right information into our shortcuts and that's, and that's the bigger issue. Like with this guy that you talked about, so we have a 61 year old African-American male with hypertension admits to heavy alcohol use. Okay. Immediately that all puts us in a place where we have this picture of this, you know, chronic alcoholic come in the department. Yeah. It probably isn't where our brain should go when we think of this patient, but there's automatically some biases or cognitive decisions made about how this patient probably isn't that sick. There probably isn't anything wrong with him. It's probably all related to his alcohol. And then as you go through the exam that you mentioned, like this is somebody like, oh, he said he told me that he slept weird. So the patient yeah. self chose that, oh, this really isn't a big deal. And yeah. I took that as a, oh, it's I, I got a jail, for, I, I got it a jail for free card because he's telling me what the problem is. And we go down that road. And we think maybe it's a Saturday Night Palsy where, again, a good thorough history and a good physical exam, if you plug it into the shortcuts, should work, but it's when we take those shortcuts and don't put the right information in. Is that how you see it? That's how yeah. I That's how I talk to learners about it all the time. So
1: I think in this case, there's a couple of issues. There's the fact that, and we're getting to this, is this is an odd presentation, right? That I think a lot of people don't understand can happen. Peripheral nerve palsies, well, what appears to be a peripheral nerve palsy could actually be really a central stroke. And we'll we'll kind of just talk about this now. This is like, okay, I had a knowledge deficit, okay? And then after this case, you started looking, well, there's an article, the cold hemiplegic arm, and they talk about these temperature changes that I observed that can happen with certain types of strokes. Then take it one step further, you know, I found an article on the peripheral palsy that's really masquerading or a stroke that's masquerading as a peripheral nerve palsy. And they talk about this thing called synkinetic testing, which I'm going to describe what I'm doing since this is a audio podcast. I'm going to put both my hands straight out. So if my left arm has a radial nerve palsy, it's drooping a little bit, right? I make a fist. If I have a radial nerve palsy, it's going to droop more. If I am having a stroke, I make that fist, the droop's gonna stay the same. It's not gonna get worse. How many people know about that? Right? Not well now guy. I know. Well, right? two two more now. Yeah. Right. So now you know about that. That was a you know faulty information. I didn't have the information to process. Therefore, I went on and said this is a radial nerve palsy. Now, knowing what I know, since I've seen radial nerve palsies, I do this, and it's like, oh, okay, it, tri- it dropped more. I feel confident this is a radial nerve palsy. They don't have temperature changes, things like that. This all sounds consistent.
2: Hey, everybody, it's Andy Little here, one of the hosts of EM Over Easy. If there was an ultrasound cover or a scanning pad that could help make ultrasound guided procedures safer, easier, and more convenient, both for you and your patients don't you think you'd be interested? Now, remember, inserting an intravenous device is one of the most frequently performed invasive patient interventions in the emergency department. But despite their frequency, establishing an IV can still be challenging, particularly in patients with difficult-to-achieve IV access. Failed insertion attempts can cause pain to the patient and increase infection rates. They can also be expensive for the hospital, as each attempt requires additional time and procedures. Our friends over at Civco have come up with Envision ultrasound covers and scanning pads that are 100% gel-free and are designed to help you insert IV devices without the use of ultrasound gel, saving you time and helping you to reduce the risk of patient contamination. Envision uses silicone adhesive that attaches easily to any transducer. Then instead of gel, you activate the probe with the use of sterile saline. When you're done with the procedure, you simply peel the cover off the ultrasound probe and send it to the high-level disinfection per your facility's policies we invite you to request a free sample of Navision and try it out for yourself today. Just visit civco.com slash gelfree. That's C-I-V-C-O dot com slash G-E-L-F-R-E-E today.
1: So I think, you know, I think there's the, there's the knowledge and information that's part of it, but then let's take a different example here. How many times have we seen somebody come in, chest pain, T-wave inversions and in those anterior precordial leads and a troponin of like four, and we're like, up end STEMI, admit them, right? Well, what else could that be? Well, if you get the BMP, now you have an elevated BMP, you know, an elevated troponin with T wave changes in chest pain, is that a PE? And I'll tell you, I do, you know, a lot of case reviews, and that's probably one of the big ones that you see is a lot of like end STEMIs or that are really PEs that are missed, and that's just because we kind of closed off and said. I got a positive troponin, EKG changes must be cardiac. Well, let's back up. There's yeah. other causes for a positive troponin. PEs can cause EKG changes. It can cause T-wave changes. Did you get enough information to exclude other diagnoses?
2: Yeah, and, and I think that that brings up the, I, th- I think there's over the course of an ER visit, there are multiple areas where if you don't put in the right amount of information, you'll get a bad, like you'll just make a bad decision. You'll decide not to get the diagnostic test. And if you don't get the diagnostic test, then you won't come up with a differential that stays wide. You'll prematurely close. And I think, and that's really the the key to diagnostic errors is these are not uncommon things. Now, luckily I've never been sued or or, or been called to court or anything like that. But a couple of cases where I have worried about that because I did some of these things where it was the patient told me X, I didn't ask about anything else. I took the patient's word for it. We didn't do a test because the patient didn't give me that, or I didn't do more of an exam because the patient gave me a a reason for why they were there, and I took their reason and said, that's perfect. And then X, Y, Z, they come back three days later, and they have a significant finding that leads to a bad outcome that might have been avoided if I had gotten the right information at those critical points in a visit and performed those additional tests, or at least kept my differential open wider.
1: Yeah. So you you hit the nail on the head. I want to throw some crazy information at you just to really drive your point home, right? When you see a patient, you're starting to make a differential in your head within 10 seconds of whether it was opening the chart, not even walking into the patient's room yet, right? You're already starting to make a differential. Within one to seven minutes of seeing that patient, you're going to have the diagnosis. The majority of the time, it's going to be correct. Like that—that's how good our heuristics or our, sh- our mental shortcuts work, our illness scripts, our pattern recognition. And the problem is—is—and I don't know if it's necessarily a problem. I think majority of the time it's good. We're probably only getting about sixty-eight percent of the information. Like there's studies that most—you know—providers only getting sixty percent of the information, not ED but all providers. Sixty-eight percent of the information that's available. Well, why? Because majority of time that's probably enough to get the right diagnosis. But I think there are times where that other little 32% of the information really could have saved us. And I think that's where, you know, are there cases where we stuck a little bit too solidly to our first impression? There was evidence to kind of tell us, hey, something else is going on, but we ignored it because it kind of went away from that first impression we had and didn't agree with what we were seeing, right? So we start doing that confirmation bias where, well, this kind of confirms what I want. It doesn't really exclude the the things that I need to exclude, but it confirms what I want to confirm. So I'll ignore all the evidence, focus on this fact, right? That's the, one of my favorites is like, you know, somebody comes with a sore throat and they do a CBC on them. The CBC, like the white count's 18,000, like yeah, probably viral. Well, like a, a WBC of 18,000 doesn't go viral, right? So now you just opened up that can of worms because you're ignoring that piece of evidence. And oh, by the way, they came back 72 hours later with what? You know, a, a prevertebral abscess, right? From, from that sore throat that now is tracked down or whatever because it was a bacterial infection to begin with. So I think, you know, these things, they're prone to happen to us because of the way we think, and it's the way we need to think in order to actually do our jobs. Brian, you have clearly
0: identified this problem. We, we all know it exists in emergency medicine. I think all of our anxiety now is going up a little bit higher because we're thinking about all of the things that, that we do wrong in a complex dynamic situation that sometimes you know we feel like we just can't do more hey i'm happy sometimes when i can get 70% of the the yeah. history on a patient and mm-hmm. feel like i'm high-fiving myself because it's above the 50% that i feel like i typically get into but let's let's move the conversation forward and talk about some of the things that we can do to help mitigate this diagnostic error without necessarily having to spend more time with the patient knowing that that, that possibility Really doesn't exist most of the time. So, how can we change the way we're practicing within the constraints we have to do better?
1: Yeah. So, and I mean, that's right. Like, that's the bread and butter of why I'm here, right? And that's why we're talking about this because it's like, hey, let's bring awareness because now we're aware that there's this issue and that there's a problem. We know we can hopefully try and fix it. And I think we can. So, you know, like with the case I discussed, right? It's just getting out there, seeing cases, getting information, seeing those odd cases. Seeing the odd presentations of common things, seeing the you know common presentations of rare things, that gives you that information bank, right? And then I think the second thing, you know, obviously is where there's you know a clinical decision rules. Use them, right? Those are tried and tra- tested rules, and and I think we have to stop believing that our patient is so special and unique all the time that they don't fit into the hard score or something else, right? Use the heart score where it's appropriate. It's there to help you. It's, you know, been proven to help. The third thing, and this is like, okay, well, I don't have a clinical decision rule for, you know, non-specific abdominal pain or leg pain, right? So this is where we use our friend. His name is Twed. <laughs> T W
2: E D. All right, I knew and, I knew a twed in undergrad. He was not that helpful. So okay, I'm
1: sorry. No. So right. I, and I think this is a tool. And this is like the you know in aviation they have their checklist. They can't do anything until they they hit the checklist. And, and what twed stands for is T is we're gonna you know what are the threatening conditions in this patient's the threats right? So you have somebody with leg pain. Well, what's threatening to that? Is that an ischemic leg? Is it rhabdo? Is it you know some uh, you know other type of like life threatening or limb threatening thing that I need to entertain, even though I think it's like, hey, this is probably just a sprain or a strain, right? The, the W, what if I'm wrong? So this is going to kind of make us stop and go beyond our anger and confirmation bias. Well, what if I'm wrong? This patient's got a sore throat. Their white count's 18,000. You know, do I need to start a money in a box? Maybe do I need to do an X ray to see if there's any, you know, prevertebral, you know, widening of that space there? I think these, these, two questions alone just kind of stop and give you pause to say, am I missing anything? What if I'm wrong? Do I need to entertain other diagnoses, right? The E, do I have sufficient evidence for or to exclude a diagnosis, right? So, this is going to help you avoid that anchoring, that confirmation bias now because I have you know this one piece of evidence that shows, okay, it's an end STEMI because there's some T-wave changes and there's you know, uh, a slightly elevated troponin, would I stop and say, have I, you know, excluded a PE? Well, let me get that D-dimer because I can't use a perk in this patient and they meet the the risk criteria. Finally, and this is my favorite because I always think of these Snickers commercials, right? What are the environmental and emotional dispositions, right? Influencing my decision right now? Is it the end of my shift? And I just want to get the heck out of the ED because I've been here for 12 hours and I'm at the end of my rope. Did I just get interrupted while I was writing my note or putting my orders in or doing my cognitive thinking about this patient's condition because the nurse just interrupted me that my patient in room 10 is seizing, right? So think about those things to say, hey, you know what? I gave this patient the appropriate time and effort. I wasn't, I'm not being rushed because I'm trying to get out of the ED right now. I gave that patient, you know, the full time because it it, it wasn't the end of my shift. And I was just, again, trying to make sure that I get out on time or that I have a good sign out for my partner who's coming to take over for me. So I think when we think about just those four simple things, it can really help us, especially when there's not a clinical decision rule, when it's not something that's so obvious to us. So, you know, uh, Drew, you talked about that, that, you know, ambiguity, the diagnostic ambiguity. This is there just to say, okay, I think I'm pretty good. Right, I don't think you know that this abdominal pain is, you know, appendicitis. I think I have a sufficient evidence to say it's not mesenteric ischemia. I think I have sufficient evidence to say it's not diverticulitis. I think we can send this patient home. You know, their vital signs are good. I I'm not hangry right now. I don't have to pee. You know, the nurses aren't interrupting me. I'm going to discharge the patient. I had a good conversation. I talked, you know, Tiger texted or or whatever secure texting, their physician, they're aware of what's going on. And they said, they texted me back and said, they'll follow up the patient tomorrow. So I think those are all the things we can do to really kind of help minimize that.
0: And here's- I'm, There was some ahead. absolute gold there that we just need to focus on for a yeah. quick second. So you had three points. Point number one, actually, maybe was the one that's going to get missed. And I want to highlight it for a second. We have to learn from the patients we've already taken care of and the way we do that is to follow up on the patients it's hard sometimes to remember to do that we do this as residents because we have to the ACGME says we have to do patient follow up logs there's method to their madness which is that is one of the best ways to learn because once you admit or you dispo the patient oftentimes it is out of sight out of mind and unless one of your colleagues goes hey you remember that which is never what you want to hear we don't often learn about them. So remember to follow up on your patients, particularly ones where there was some diagnostic ambiguity, too, because that's how you can get that, that tip, right? They came back and had that large vessel occlusion that I missed. And then I learned the things that you just taught me about right. the difference between a stroke and Saturday night palsy.
1: So hold on. I have to, I have, before you go on to your next point, I have to say, like, that is gold right there, right? Because I figure we're admitting what maybe your shop, 16% of your patients get admitted, right? And we're saying of that 12% diagnostic errors, right? Where's majority of your patients going? They're going oh. home, right? How many of those patients are we calling up saying, Hey, how'd you do? Oh, you know, how you diagnosed me with flu. I'm still having symptoms. Like two weeks later, my doc did, you know, some tests and it looks like I have lymphoma. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, I mean, that's not like great what you want to hear, but that's like, "Hey, what did I miss? Like, Did I premature clothes? Did I do this? No, this was just a really early presentation. I don't think anybody could got it. It wasn't medical malpractice. You did the standard of care. You know, I don't think because you'd made a diagnostic error, you're guilty of medical malpractice, right? I think sometimes people come, I've had like five minutes of belly pain. OK, right? You haven't even had time yet to really give me the full clinical course here of what's going on. But I think, to your point, a lot of physicians, we're, not, you know, we're at a residency, we're not required to do follow-up. But if you really want to learn, you got to pick up the phone and call some of those patients he is sent home. It's easy to look at those, hey, I had this difficult patient, star their medical record number, put them in your little bin in the computer so you could follow up on them in the ICU. No, no, no. Majority of your patients are going home and that's where majority of your errors are occurring.
0: Yeah. One of the things I do, I've started picking up uh, over the last year or so is in my EMR, I can run a patient list over the last week. I will generate that patient list, and I will just randomly click on every 10th patient. I don't know what the disposition was. They might've been admitted. They might've been discharged. They might've been transferred. Yeah. And just see, is there another note after I touched that patient from yeah. a week ago, from a couple of days ago? Did they bounce back? Is there a PCP note? Because a lot of them exist in the system and I can read. And you get a ton of information from that. I struggle calling patients back just because... That's where I get a little bit shy despite how I might come across on a podcast. And and that's a that's the next inertia I need to get because well, there's a lot to be learned from
1: that too. Yeah. I mean, I think we all are like, oh gosh, i call a patient what if they like start, you know, what, what can am me, I right, open here? Right? Yeah. But I think it also affords you an opportunity when they say, Well, I'm not getting better. Well, hey, why don't you come back? Right? Come back. I'll let the triage nurse know you're coming. We'll try to get you in right away. And now there's an opportunity for you to intervene, right? before badness goes on and happens, and then people are really unhappy.
0: So we identified follow-ups. That is gold. It is absolute gold, and I could not let that be missed. I think your point about decision tools, clinical decision instruments, whether that's an internal instrument, a group instrument, or something large scale like using the Wells criteria and PERC and heart score we are not smarter than those criteria. Those criteria are what formulate our decisions. Anyone who's trained in the past decade or two decades, you you cannot separate your gestalt on pulmonary embolism from Wells and Perk. So don't try to do it. That is what formulated our gestalt. And that was formulated by prior physicians. Use those tools the way they're meant to be used. They don't have to dictate care, but they should guide care. And I like this tweet thing. I, I think this is a really great way to approach Every patient you see just as a check to yourself, check yourself before you wreck yourself.
1: Right. And I think that's all you're doing is before you send somebody home, before you send somebody or make that final diagnosis. And you're like, so confident just run this through your head real quick. Right. It's just an opportunity to say, am I like making a mistake? Am I too Stuck to this one diagnosis without real, and like this one piece of information doesn't make sense, or this other piece of information doesn't make sense. Because let's be honest, right? If you look, and you know, this isn't like you know criminal or anything, but if you look at the chart on that, you know, sixty-one year old patient who had a stroke that we talk about, do you think there's any information in that chart about this, you know, left, you know, thigh lateral paresthesia? No, because it doesn't like, was that important? That doesn't make sense. It's not till after. So how many things aren't in the chart that the patient may have given us, but we kind of just dismissed, right? Because we're like, Hey, only one complaint today. <laughs> we're only doing one complaint. And I think like one other thing, I think that's become really powerful that I've seen in the literature is the, what matters to you, right? Because a lot of times patients come in, you see a young lady with chest pain and she's like freaking out. And you're like, Oh gosh. Right. But like, you yes, ask the patient, what matters to you? Like, what has you concerned about this? What is your biggest concern? Well, my dad died of you know a heart attack, and I'm afraid I'm having a heart attack too. Okay, let's reassure you. Your EKG looks good. We're going to do two troponins. Your low risk via the heart score. You're safe to go home. Your chance of having a major adverse coronary event in the next thirty days is less than three percent. Most patients, like when I tell them three percent, they're like, "I'm going home." I've had one patient say, you know what? I really think I'd like to stay. Okay. Right. It's a shared decision-making rule. It's not the end-all be-all. And that's where I think we get a little, we forget to at times. We're just like, nope, hard score. They can go home. And it's like, did you talk to the patient? (laughs) Well,
0: Brian, I think that's a great place to leave this conversation. There is so much we could talk about in diagnostic error. Thank you for raising my anxiety and then helping to lower yeah. it with some ideas in which we can help prevent making some of that diagnostic error that is just so inherent in what we do in the emergency department. Look forward to talking to you next time and a hey, big thanks thank to all you. our listeners.
1: Appreciate it, guys.
0: I